Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Maria Mills at Scott County's Prior Lake Library. Journalist Maria Mills made a name for herself in the literature world last year with the publication of her much-anticipated the Mockingbird Next Door. Consider the definitive biography on Harper Lee, the reclusive author behind one of the best-loved novels of the last century. The Mockingbird Next Door became an instant national bestseller. Mills traveled to Lee's native Monroeville, Alabama, in hopes of securing a rare interview for the Chicago Tribune. Exceeding all expectations, Mills struck up an unlikely and close friendship with the literary luminary. In addition to accolades for her writing on Harper Lee, Mills received a Pulitzer Prize as part of a Chicago Tribune team who worked on a 2001 expose about O'Hare Airport entitled Gateway to Gridlock. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a beautiful library. Um, I'm from Madison, Wisconsin, have a lot of family in Black River Falls, Wisconsin. My mom and my brother, who lives in the area, are here tonight. So even though I'm out of state technically, they're over there, I feel like I'm at home among friends. And I hope we can just have a wonderful conversation about these two remarkable women that I was so fortunate to get to know. Um, I thought I would do, what I would do is tell you a little bit about how I came to go to Monroeville, Alabama in the first place. What's a nice girl from Wisconsin doing in South Alabama? Um, and read just probably two very short passages to give you a little flavor of the book and that experience. Uh, tell some stories about spending time with the Lee sisters and their friends and family there. And then I want to make sure I leave plenty of time for questions and answers. This is a book that I think, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, that so many people have deep feeling for. I meet people everywhere I go who reread it regularly, who have stories to share about their own experiences with it. In 2001, the Chicago Library System chose To Kill a Mockingbird for its One Book, One Chicago. It was its first ever selection. Um, and I was a feature writer at the Chicago Tribune then. Some of you probably who are familiar with Chicago can picture the Tribune Tower on Michigan Avenue there by the river. So I was at my cubicle one day um, and my feature editor came to my cubicle and, and asked if I wanted to take a trip. Usually the smart answer to that question is, well, where to? And then you give them your answer. Um, 
but I love to travel for stories, and I'd been out sick a lot that year. I was so pleased he was willing to send me on a trip. I wanted him to know I was up for uh, any any trip for any story. And so I just said, sure, where to? And he said, Monroeville, Alabama. And I looked at him, he saw my quizzical look and explained that was Harper Lee's hometown. And then I understood why I was being sent there. Um, we knew that Harper Lee um, had been famously private for so many years and there would be no chance of an interview and that her sister, Alice Lee, her older sister who um, served as gatekeeper helped Nell Harper handled the business of being Harper Lee for many years uh, from her small law office there in Monroeville, that Alice Lee also uh, was not inclined generally to speak with journalists. But we thought nonetheless it would be interesting to go to Monroeville and just give readers in Chicago, uh, while that community read was going on, a sense of that town that still draws tourists from all over the country and in fact the world. Um, for the play that's put on every year of To Kill a Mockingbird, or to see the old courthouse um, that is familiar, particularly the, the interior of the courtroom, to people who love the movie. I'm guessing there are a few people here who've seen To Kill a Mockingbird, to have seen the movie, quite a few. Um, and, and to get a glimpse of, of the fictional Maycomb that was inspired by Monroeville. And there are glimpses to be had. The town has changed a lot, certainly, since the 1930s that, that Harper Lee brings so vividly to life in To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, but there are glimpses to be had. And so we thought we would write about that and interview people around town, and did just that. Um, I went down with a photographer, and near the end of our stay, We'd had um, a good time talking to different people. It was fascinating to learn more about that town. And uh, there were people who remembered the Lee family uh, from way back. Um, A.C. Lee, Amesa Coleman Lee, Alice and Nell's father. Um, and there were four children all told in that family. Of course, was the inspiration for the Atticus Finch character. Um, and Certainly there were still people who remembered him and remembered the family. And so we'd had a good visit and we're about to head back, but I knew I had to be able to at least tell my editor that I had tried to knock on the Lee's front door, um, which was not something I relished doing. Some of you might remember the old comedy sketch of the vacuum cleaner salesman who would stand at someone's door and knock but think to himself, nobody home, I hope, I hope, I hope. Uh, and that was my basic feeling about it, but, but to my surprise, my knock was answered by just this wisp of a woman. Uh, and this was Alice Finch Lee, uh, who would have been 89, I believe, at that time, and uh, practiced law until she was 100 years old. Alice passed away last year. Um, I saw her shortly before she died. She lived to be 103. And uh, she was somebody who always had three, four books going at a time. It was wonderful to talk about the law with her. Um, and and um, as I mentioned to people before the talk, just a remarkable woman in her own right and such a good part of this experience. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Um, Alice, as I mentioned, uh, was often the first point of contact for people who hoped to speak to Nell Harper Lee. And usually there was a polite, um, reply that that wouldn't be possible. So I was surprised when she invited me into their home, which is quite a modest red brick house on a quiet side street in Monroeville. Um, I had written Alice 
uh, Miss Alice, as she's known around, was known for years around town, to let her know that I would be coming to town and why. Um, and she had, she had gotten the letter and was interested to know more about what was happening in Chicago with, there were panels going on, there were showings of the movie, discussion groups. They had copies of To Kill a Mockingbird in um, not only English, but Spanish and Polish in different library branches. And, uh, and she and Nell Harper, I think, had, um, you know, I always spoke forcefully about the power of both libraries and reading and education to make all the difference in a life. And so uh, she was interested to know more about what was happening in Chicago. Also interested to know who I had talked to around town and what they had to say. <laughs> I think word had gotten back to her that, they, that people felt um, that I had done my homework and that the questions were thoughtful. And so I think all of that contributed to um, the surprise of being welcomed in by Alice. And just from the beginning, we had a marvelous conversation. She, as I mentioned, she's just a wisp of a woman. She and her sister, Nell Harper, um, you know, shared that home part of the year for many years. Nell Harper uh, taking the train between Manhattan, where she had a small apartment, and Monroeville. Can you imagine two more different places to be uh, <laughs> spending time? Uh, uh, and so Alice invited me in and um, noticed as I looked around this quite modest house, I don't think the decor had changed a whole lot from the 1950s, maybe. Um, neither one of them, in my experience, just cared very much about material things. Um, and, but they did care about books, of course, and were fighting a rising tide of books in that house always on you know, every available surface. Chances were good, you might find a book or a pile of papers. So she invited me in and we began talking about a number of things, the things I just mentioned, and also what it had been like for these two sisters um, to deal with this just incredibly enduring popularity of Mockingbird ever since it was published in 1960. The reams of correspondence that still came into their small, to their post office box, the small post office on the town square. Monroeville's a town of about 6,500 considerably bigger now than, than the, in the 1930s when Nell Harper was a child, but certainly uh, a small town still, the county seat. Um, and she noticed me looking around. I spotted a manual typewriter in their dining room uh, with things piled up next to it. And it, this was very warm. It was in the summertime, but uh, air conditioning was rarely felt in that home. In fact, they didn't have a television set for many years. They would go to a conference room in the bank nearby if they wanted to watch University of Alabama football <laughs> and otherwise. So they, they, from what I could surmise pretty quickly, I think around the time of manual typewriters is when they stopped keeping up with a lot of technology, only going to the next level as a friend of theirs said when strictly necessary. Um, and Alice with this look of bemusement that, that um, that was a trademark of hers, I, I came to learn, looked at me taking all this in and she said, we are not of the 21st century, <laughs> hardly even the 20th. <laughs> and that was true in many ways. Um, and so we, we had a wonderful conversation and uh, not long after that, I heard to my surprise once again from her sister, from the woman she called her baby sister, uh, Nell Harper Lee, as many of you know, 
uh, Harper Lee on the book ja jacket, the, that Nell Harper Lee was her given name, and then Monroeville is often Nell or Nell Harper. Um, and so one of the two things I thought I would read just briefly has to do with that first encounter um, not long after. We were, the, uh, the photographer and I both had, we were staying at the Best Western on the outskirts of town. Has anyone here been to Monroeville by any chance? Oh, you have, and you have. Ah, well, you have, yes, for sure. Um, uh, it is, as, as Nell Harper said to me early on, 100 miles from anywhere. <laughs> It is well off the interstate, and so it isn't a place that you tend to pass through. You usually have to want to go there. But we were there uh, in, our, in the Best Western on the outskirts of town. So this was not too long after I had um, the day when I had met with Miss Alice, and I, and I got a phone call. So this is the short passage I'll read. I answered the phone. Um, hello, Miss Mills? Yes, this is Maria. This is Harper Lee. You've made quite an impression on Miss Alice. I wonder if we might meet. You can imagine. It was as if I had answered the phone and heard, hello, this is the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to skip over the, a little bit here, but I, I suffice it to say I tried to keep my composure uh, and semi-successfully did, I think. Um, the voice on the other end was slightly husky and almost musical, her Alabama accent undiminished by the years in New York City. She didn't sound the least bit shy. And I'm going to skip ahead here through um, some of our conversation. Like Alice, she was interested in knowing about some of my conversations around town and in, in knowing more about what was happening in Chicago. Um, this was Alabama, I should say, South Alabama in the summertime. So as a friend of mine says, it is when the heat is so intense, that it's like the sun is personally out to get you in particular as you walk across a parking lot. I was, I do better if it never gets above 68 or so. Um, so I was withering and it was a bright uh, summer day. Not came at the appointed time. I opened the door to my motel room. The light was harsh compared with the dark room. I blinked. Everything about the woman before me looked solid and practical. The short white hair, the large glasses, the black sneakers fastened with wide Velcro straps. Uh, that was something of a casual uniform, variations on that that I, I came to learn she often wore. Um, and so she came in, stepped into the coolness of the room, and we began to talk about um, those conversations and uh, certainly her own experiences. And I, I was surprised how quickly she, I heard for the first of what would be many times, this just wonderfully contagious laugh she had. She had the kind of laugh that would kind of wash across a room. Um, and so that sense of fun was apparent early on. And that I think that surprised me about both sisters. It certainly was true um, of both of them. And one of the reasons it was, it was so much fun, along with being um, fascinating to spend a good bit of time with them, I think because Harper Lee is so famously private, and Alice was known as quite a proper attorney in that town. I, sense of fun was not the first thing I, that would have come to mind for either of them, but it was readily apparent with both of them. In fact, my mother knows when I was um, working on putting this memoir together, I would find myself having to think of other ways to say she said with a twinkle in her eye, <laughs> because they both had this way of just sparkling uh, when they were amused by something, and they, they often were. Uh, sometimes at the Visiting Yankee, more on that later, and, and sometimes on 
goings on about town. Um, and so, and so it was um, a different conversation than I had anticipated. And I, when I mentioned to her that I had really enjoyed Gregory Peck's comments in a documentary about the making of To, Camilla, to Kill a Mockingbird, um, she leaned forward. We were sitting at one of those, you know, little laminate type uh, tables in the motel room. Um, and at the mention of Gregory Peck's name, of course, famously, he won the Oscar for his role as Atticus Finch. Um, I mentioned that I'd enjoyed Gregory Peck's remarks in a documentary about meeting her and filming To Kill a Mockingbird. At the mention of Peck, she leaned forward. Her eyes danced. See, there's, a, there's another way to say that already. And she said, isn't he delicious? <laughs> and uh, I just thought, oh, this is going to be a different conversation than I anticipated. And it, to me, it was, um, it was moving to learn already in that conversation, and then as time went along, that that movie that has its own magic, um, and of course, she always called it one of the best adaptations ever, which is not something you often hear from novelists whose books are adapted for the screen. Um, but that it was interesting to learn that that was an enduring friendship for her um, with Gregory Peck uh, and his wife, Veronique Peck, both of whom, of course, have since died. Um, but th that, was a, that was a long friendship that came out of the filming, as was a friendship um, with any number of other people involved in the film, one of them being Horton Foote, the wonderful Texas playwright who won an Oscar for adapting the novel uh, to the screen. I uh, interviewed him for the book before he passed away. And uh, she always called him one of the last true gentlemen. He had that kind of sweetness about him and, and was a Texas gentleman despite many years of uh, living in the North and also the West and being a playwright. Um, she had as many questions for me as I had for her. And so um, after that conversation, I went back to Chicago um, and, but before I got back to Chicago, um, the sisters already had invited me to pay another visit. And so the article that we had in mind to write evolved into something different. Um, and with their help, Nell Harper um, didn't want to be quoted in the article, but was helpful. There were some things she, she wanted me to set straight in what became a longer profile of her. Um, and Alice um, took exception to her usual policy. and. Um, I quoted her extensively in what became a long article that ran the following year um, after a good bit of research and uh, returning to Monroeville um, with some, one of the sidebar stories was about that friendship with Gregory Peck, another about the experience of going fishing on my second visit with Nell Harper and longtime Lee family friend, um, a Methodist minister, Thomas Lane Butts. Um, similar age to Nell, and, and uh, I can tell you that they decided that, or they had long ago, I guess, decided that hot dogs are the best bait to use for catfish and bream. Um, that was where they went, actually, after um, September 11th. Um, I was, I, as I mentioned, first visited them. It would have been, gee, not that long before. It was the summer of 2001 and was scheduled to take my second return trip back when September 11th happened. I can remember faxing them and saying, all oh, the planes are grounded and it's all hands on deck at the paper, of course, and so I will um, keep you posted. And I was able to go down there not too long after that and um, 
Tom described uh, having gone there with Nell Harper after learning of the news because, of course, she was a New Yorker as well as an Alabama girl, and just having a quiet day right after that to reflect on what had happened. Um, I, I decided to, I hand-delivered the story to them when it ran, um, and, and they invited me to pay more return visits, and so I did. And a lot of um, the book details what it was like to live next door to them. With their blessing, then, this would have been in 2004, um, I rented the house next door to theirs. It was a similar red brick, one-story ranch house. Um, and uh, rented that for 18 months before returning to Chicago. And so um, for, for a journalist, it was a luxury to have a chance to get to know, not only to get to know them the way I did, but to get to know them in the context of their friends and family and that hometown. Um, more than once, I think there were tourists who would come to town um, and make a literary pilgrimage of sorts for a lot of them. And, be walking downtown, maybe taking the self-guided tour you can, um, and not necessarily know that the woman with short cropped white hair uh, walking by was one Nell Harper Lee. I don't think a lot of people um, knew what she looked like then. I think in recent years, more people do. Um, but there was an anonymity in New York, I think, the kind of anonymity New York offers most anyone. Um, and in Monroeville, of course, there were most local people. She was Mr. Lee's little girl, among other things, and Alice's sister, and um, still had plenty of people she had grown up with that lived in the area, some of whom would uh, kind of give her wide berth if we were, we drank dark oceans of coffee at McDonald's and Burger King and around my kitchen table and kitchen table of friends of theirs. And sometimes people would um, stop her when she was out and about. A lot of times people tried to kind of give her a, um, a zone of privacy there as well. Although I can remember being out to breakfast with her once and a woman who was there with her grandchildren recognized Nell, didn't know her, but recognized her and came over uh, kind of nervously and said what the book meant to her and apologized. And was both of them were gracious. Nell was delightful. They had a short conversation. And as, she, as that woman was walking away, I was thinking to myself, this is a story that she will tell many times and an experience she will treasure for years to come. But as I was thinking that, uh, Nell turned to me and said, I hope I didn't disappoint her. And I thought, you know, that's a glimpse at the weight of expectations, I think, that anyone who's had the kind of mystique that built up around Harper Lee um, deals with. Um, they, they, as I mentioned, still were getting a lot of correspondence uh, into their post office box and, um, and lived quite a simple life in Monroeville. I, one of the things that um, impressed me from the beginning about both of them was the distinction that they made between achievement and celebrity. And I think that's one we don't always make these days, especially with reality television and, and so on. Um, but I, her, her fame, or that of other people's, I don't think was terribly impressive to either of those sisters. Achievement was. Um, I think that's one reason that the Pulitzer Prize that Nell Harper um, received for To Kill a Mockingbird was a source of enduring pride all those years later. The book, of course, was published in 1960. And I can remember uh, when I f first met her, she said, 40 years of this, meaning that that press of interest gets to be a bit much. Um, and now, 
course, it's been, well, more than 50. Um, for me, it was a chance while I was living there to just kind of see what daily life was like. Alice was still practicing law, as I mentioned. She practiced law till she was 100 years old. Um, Harper Lee would drive her when she was not in New York to the law office, and she would just get behind the wheel of her Buick and say, driving Miss Alice. That was one of the things she did when she was there. I mentioned that the Pulitzer Prize was a was a um, was something that both sisters and in, inexperienced both sisters talked about, and I think one of the um, especially meaningful to both of them because their father had lived long enough to see that happen, uh, lived long enough as well to meet uh, Gregory Peck when he came to town before filming. Unfortunately, did not live long enough to see the movie come out, um, but I but I knew that uh, that the Pulitzer was a was a source of, of enduring pride. And so it was fun for me when I was living next door but paid a visit to Chicago for some doctor's appointments. This would have been in the spring of 2005. Um, something happened related to a Pulitzer Prize that I knew Mel Harper would get a kick out of. She and her friends were of that generation, certainly, where people grew up hearing good storytelling on front porches. And uh, that, that was a form of entertainment. Um, it's something we talked about you know, we kind of wonder, will the fact that many people aren't growing up with that now, both because of air conditioning and television and all the other screens that compete, will that be reflected in the literature that comes out of the South at some point? I think it will be interesting to see. You certainly could hear the cadences of that kind of Southern storytelling um, in both of those sisters and in, in To Kill a Mockingbird, of course. Um, and so I found that people kind of, it was good to have a story or two to tell. It was almost like people would be, they and their friends, they were like little pebbles I wrote in the book, and you'd kind of pick one up and polish it, put it in your pocket, polish it a little bit, and pull it out when you needed one. And, and so uh, I was back in Alabama after this short visit in Chicago. I was sitting around the kitchen table with Nell Harper um, and two of her good friends. We were at uh, one friend's home having coffee around the kitchen table, not an uncommon Occurrence. And Nell was asking me a little bit about Chicago, and so I told her what had happened regarding a Pulitzer Prize, which was um, that when I was back, a friend of mine at the paper won a Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. Um, and I lived then near the Tribune, in fact, still do. We decided we would have the celebration at my house, and so as I told Nell and our two friends there, I called up a bakery and ordered a cake to have at this celebration. And I said, to the person who answered the phone and who had quite a heavy accent, I wanted to make sure he was understanding me well. And, and I said, could you have explained the occasion and said, could you make sure that the cake says, uh, congratulations, Julia, uh, Pulitzer Prize 2005. And I said to him, she, her name is Julia, but she gets Julie quite often. And so if you could make sure that it's Julia with an A, we'll have all these copy editors, among other people, coming over for this celebration. <laughs> And, that, and, and so he said, oh, congratulations to her, um, no worries. Well, as I told Nell and our friends, it, not long before everyone arrived at my apartment, I, the cake was delivered, and I pulled open the lid to the cake box. And it did say, congratulations, Julia, with an A. And below it said, poet surprise, 2005. <laughs> <laughs> and Nell laughed that contagious laugh of hers. 
I remember her saying, oh, that's marvelous. Um, my, my friend Julia, with an A, is, is a lyrical writer, and so it seemed we still call, I still call her the poet surprise sometimes. That stuck. Um, she and Alice got a kick out of that. And you know, those sisters were playful with language, which I think would surprise no one um, who's read To Kill a Mockingbird. There is that, that sense of fun um, with the language. They, they both would chuckle when they remembered their Aunt Alice, who was their mother's sister. Um, who herself was playful with language. In fact, they had memories of that as girls, and I always wondered if that didn't help um, inform their own sense of language as they got older. This Aunt Alice, uh, well, first of all, she was uh, familiar with heart medication, a little less familiar with modern clocks, uh, and so she referred to her digitalis clock at one point, <laughs> which people got a kick out of. That was an unintentional one, I think. The, Nell and Alice would still laugh about that, and they would still, amongst themselves, if the, if the sky was darkening and it looked like really bad weather was on the way. Um, and of course, this was an area where hurricanes blew through and um, all kinds of, um, sort of tropical storm-like weather. Um, one would say to the other, looks like siphaloon coming. And that was an Aunt Alice-ism, the weather that looked like it might turn into the combination of a cyclone and a typhoon was a cyphaloon. Um, and I thought, I remember being in the back seat of Nell's Buick one day, and um, Nell was behind the, was behind the drive, slid in behind the driver's seat, as she often did. Alice was in the passenger seat. I was in the back seat, often feeling like a little kid on these wonderful drives we would take, because with both of them had difficulty uh, with their hearing. In fact, Alice had a cochlear implant that helped restore some hearing. Um, she had developed hearing problems later in life, and the cochlear implant helped, but it also, in the end, complications caused a balance problem. In fact, she used a walker for balance. Um, so with the two of them, not always either one necessarily, hearing all that well on these drives, I would scoot up like a little kid in the back seat and would, they could hear me better that way, and I would sometimes be saying, with my little head perched, you know, uh, behind them. She said, and then saying to the other one, she said, um, they were they were fascinating as sisters. As I mentioned, um, there were two sibling, two other siblings that were between them in age, and Alice was almost 15 years older than Nell Harper. Um, neither of them married or had children. The two siblings between them, a sister, another sister, and a brother, did. Um, and of course, Alice then remembered from the perspective of someone who is essentially a generation older, Nell Harper, for example, as a child, uh, playing with her childhood running buddy, Truman Capote. Um, I don't believe Capote was the last name yet, but this was Truman. In fact, I can remember Alice saying, he was a funny looking little thing. <laughs> um, I, I think it's remarkable to think of those two imaginations being side by side as children. Um, in fact, Alice remembered uh, her father brought home a, a manual typewriter from the law office, and she remembered Nell writing a sentence on the typewriter, the young, very young Nell, and type, turning the typewriter around, young Truman would, would write a sentence, and uh, they explored that hometown, roamed around, got into scrapes and adventures together. Um, he lived next door with some aunts. Um, and, and so spent part of his time in Monroeville. And I can remember Alice also saying that he liked to be underfoot in the Lee household. And 
At the end of the day, in fact, their father would have to look up and say, has anyone put Truman out? Um, the second part, in fact, that brings me to the second short passage I thought I would read you, is from later in my stay when I was next door. Um, and this was, some of you maybe have remember or even have seen the, the two movies that came out, one not too long after the other, about that period of time when Truman Capote went to Kansas to research farmhouse murders, a family that had been uh, killed in their farmhouse, and wrote what became In Cold Blood, which he called the first nonfiction novel. The idea was a narrative of, of an actual event that would be recreated so meticulously and told in such a novelistic way that it would be like reading fiction. Um, this was when Mockingbird was already at the publisher, but before it had come out. And so did any of you see the movies? These both were in the works when I was living there. Um, the first one was Capote with Philip Seymour Hoffman as Truman Capote, and Catherine Keener played the role of the young Nell Harper who went with her friend uh, to Kansas. And then not too long after that, the other movie came out, and that, in that one, Sandra Bullock played the Harper Lee role, and Toby Jones, a British actor, played uh, the Truman role. Um, so, so she would get dispatches every now and then when I was living next door about what was happening regarding these movies. Um, I, I remember being surprised she didn't know more about what was going on. It was there were you know things in the news about the filming and previously about the casting, and, and she would say, "You don't know how Hollywood works." We had this conversation a number of times, and I said, "Educate me." And she said, "They do stuff and they tell you about it later." Um, so she was interested to see this first movie um, and got what you might call a bootleg copy uh, from California. Um, with her hearing, she knew it would have been difficult to see it in a theater, um, although friends did offer to smuggle her in with a wig that they had on hand. She declined. Um, and instead, we went to the house of um, a friend of theirs, also involved as both sisters were with the Methodist Church in town. And uh, she had a VCR. So only in this crowd would I be considered a tech expert as my nephews could tell you, I am not a tech expert in the family, but among this crowd, you know, most of my time was spent with people who were, um, many of them in their 80s and 90s, and um, Alice was in her 90s when I was living next door. Nell Harper would be befuddled by a good bit of technology, and so I could press rewind and fast forward, so I was actually useful in a technical sense when it came to this. And we, we went over, we got uh, some food at Burger King, burgers and salads, and, and had a meal with Catherine, with their friend who was a clerk at a pharmacy uh, in town and a good friend of theirs, and um, used to work at the Vanity Fair, what was called the Silk Mill, the apparel manufacturer, which was the big employer in town uh, for many years, no longer. Um, so we had our meal, we, and we put the tape into the VCR to get a sense of this movie. I think Nell didn't know what to expect, and it was um, unnerving, as you could imagine, to know that you're about to see someone's depiction of you on the screen. Just a sentence into the first dialogue, Nell was leaning forward and frowning. What was that, she said. I pulled my chair up near hers, remote in hand. 
and turned the volume up and up. I said, tell me when the volume is loud enough and turned it up and up. We had you know, moved our chairs right up next to this television knowing that, that hearing would be a challenge. Um, but even so, she just wasn't catching much of the dialogue. Rewound, tried it again. Um, and so I rewound it once more and then paused the tape, faced her and repeated the dialogue enunciating the words loudly. So we proceeded that way. Um, after a scene of Nell and Truman, so Catherine Keener and Philip Seymour Hoffman on the train to Kansas, we see Nell behind the wheel of a yellow and white car, the Kansas wheat field stretching to the horizon. Nell glances at Truman, who is staring out the window at the rural scene. And of course, um, many of you know that, that after their childhood uh, friendship, Truman was the first to move to New York and began to make his way as a writer and was able to be helpful to Nell Harper, introduce her to people. When she left, uh, she was studying law and left not too long uh, before she would have graduated, decided as Alice said she got an itch to be a writer, went to New York to make her way, uh, working uh, for the most part as a reservations clerk at an airline. Um, but he was, a, he was able to be helpful to her then when they were now not playmates on Alabama Avenue, but adults making their way as writers in New York City. And so she was there helping him with the research. He was, as you could imagine, um, a noticeable person in, in rural Kansas. He was such a diminutive but outside, diminutive in size but outsized uh, personality and that distinctive voice and um, people in town have said that she was very helpful in terms of being able to just put people at ease around a kitchen table as they were interviewing people in the town, learning more about that family and what had happened. So in here, they're in the car, Truman's staring out the window, and Nell says, does this make you miss Alabama? Not even a little bit, he answers. You lie, Nell shoots back. It is friendly banter between the two. I don't try. I don't lie, Truman insists. We can talk more about that later. That was a subject of some discussion. Um, I paused the tape and resumed my loud enunciating facing Nell. And I had to think to myself what to say to her even. So finally I said, um, you said to Truman, does this make you miss Alabama? And he said, not even a little bit. Then you said, you lie. And he said, I don't lie. The thing that struck me that night was, if this felt odd to me, telling the Harper Lee in the room what the Harper Lee in the car said, I could only try to imagine how it was for her. Um, and I'll, I'll conclude the reading uh, with that. I want to take questions shortly. I will, I will tell you, though, for those who saw the movie, that I think uh, she seemed relieved for the most part. She, she deemed a lot of the movie historical fiction, you know, said dialogue was the product of the filmmakers imagination, but she also said that she felt um, that they had captured something essential about Truman Capote, which I thought was high praise coming from someone who knew her in the way she did. In fact, she said that night, um, he'll win an Oscar for this, and of course, uh, he did. Um, why don't I end it there? I'll just uh, kind of tell you that my time ended then in the uh, spring of 2006, so after renting the house next door to theirs um, for 18 months, I returned to Chicago um, to begin putting more of this together, continued to make return visits to Alabama, um, still have friends there and go back and see people. 
Um, and then this book was published last year. And um, when the paperback came out in the summer, my mother and I took a driving tour of the South as part of the paperback tour, which was great fun. Fun to meet people who said, you know, even if you put Mockingbird and this extraordinary experience, and now Watchmen, which we can talk about, aside, um, they just they reminded me of ants that I had, um, particularly people I think who grew up in that part of the country, some of their expressions and sensibilities, and so that was that was fun for both of us. Why don't I end it there and just open it up to anybody who has uh, questions? Um, and I, as I mentioned, um, Alice died last year um, at 103. She had, she had lived at home until she was about 100, practiced law. Um, now, Harper Lee, unfortunately, suffered a serious stroke in 2007, as many of you know, um, and has been unable to live at home since then. Um, it's a, Monroeville and, and Nell's world, in fact, I wrote a piece about this for the Washington Post, is, is different in significant ways since, it was, since the time when I was there. Um, for so long, she and Alice were a team dealing with a lot of this, and so um, Alice's absence is palpable. And of course, when I was living there, she was able to get behind the wheel of her Buick and head for open road, those red dirt uh, country roads that they like to explore, and now um, has been uh, at an assisted living facility and had health difficulties. I feel um, glad that, that that sort of last chapter of life as they knew it, when they were both living at home and able to do all of that, um, is preserved. And of course, the memories of some of their friends, um, who many of whom since have died, um, I just it's nice to revisit that time and place, uh, sometimes on the pages of the book. They were both very, very matter-of-fact about one of the vicissitudes of being the age they were was that um, they lost a lot of friends and family. And so they would say very matter-of-factly, like, talk to so-and-so, he still got his marbles. Or, you know, you should really talk to so-and-so while he's still above ground. It, it was just a fact of life. And I'm so glad that I, that I had the chance to and that people were so generous in sharing their stories with me. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments from Maria Mills and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Maria Mills and Harper Lee ever had the opportunity to discuss Go Set a Watchman and the enormous expectation surrounding Lee's second novel. One of the few people that knew her that I ever met that knew her in the context of both her New York life and her Monroeville life was the Methodist minister I mentioned, um, Tom Butts. Where did you go, the person? Oh, there you are, okay. <laughs> um, and, and I recount in the book, she, uh, so he was somebody who spent time with her in, in both contexts, uh, in Monroeville, because he's from that area and lives there, um, and in New York because he would guest preach at a Methodist church there. And so um, had a chance to spend time with her in Manhattan as well. And he said that one night when they were in New York, um, she said to him, I think they'd had dinner, and she said, um, do you ever wonder why I didn't publish a second book? 
and he said in his understated way something to the effect of, yes, me and a million other people. And what she said on that occasion was uh, two things. One, I said what I have to say in Mockingbird, and I won't say it again. And two, I wouldn't go through all that publicity again for all the money in the world. I asked Alice about that because, of course, that's a question that have, people have had about her all these years. Um, and Alice said a couple of things. Um, I thought it was interesting. She, of course, there too, was watching all of this unfold from the perspective of an older sister. Um, and she said, um, all of this, meaning the tremendous uh, success and the expectations um, and publicity that attended the publication of Mockingbird, she said, all of that fell in on her. And uh, her, I'm paraphrasing, but her best way of dealing with it was not to let it get too close to her. Um, and she also said pointedly, I can still remember this, um, how would you feel if you started at the pinnacle? Would you feel you're competing with yourself? Um, so, so those would speak to that. It certainly was a question that um, I think a lot of people didn't put it to Nell directly, although it was, uh, certainly has always been speculated about in the press. Our next audience member notes that Truman Capote and Harper Lee had very opposite reactions to fame. Lee shied away from the limelight, whereas Capote embraced it. How did their friendship change over the years as they gained celebrity status? That friendship bore the strains of, um, first of all, his difficulty with drugs and alcohol. Um, she referred to him as a world-class gossip, which I think was uh, opinion generally held. Um, and they, they, she and Alice both did not appreciate unkind things he had said about their mother, who they described as a gentle soul who had been good to Truman. And I know Alice, uh, I remember her saying one day that she felt, too, the fact that Capote hadn't won a Pulitzer Prize, that there was jealousy that entered the picture because of that. I know Nell told me, and I hadn't read this anywhere before, that when she went to Kansas with him, um, first of all, she said they did both share um, you know, from early age, sort of uh, an interest in crime and, and uh, detective stories. The Lee's uh, father subscribed to True Detective, I believe it was. And so um, that was something they grew up with. Um, and so she was interested, but she said she also felt that Truman was floundering already somewhat at that point and that she hoped, she felt this might be a good project for him and so it would, that it would be helpful for her to go out there with him, but um, as you know, he died in his 50s, um, and I think there was, there was anger, there was resentment. I think there was also sadness that, that his life ended as early as it did. I think, I think if you were writing a novel and you said, here are two reactions to fame, you would say, well, this is just too unrealistic to come up with two people who were childhood playmates and one who is so famously identified with fleeing the spotlight and then one, of course, who courted it and was known for all of his appearances and drinking that in. And yet, uh, his children played on that same stretch of Alabama Avenue. Yeah. This question asker inquires about Maria Mills' thoughts on Harper Lee's rumored disapproval of Mills' memoir, The Mockingbird Next Door. Actually, before the book was even published, when the um, book was acquired by the Penguin Press, by my publisher, a letter went out attributed to Nell Harper Lee, um, 
disavowing the book essentially and and um, Alice Lee fortunately was still practicing law um, and issued a statement of her own saying no they had participated and um, I mean they had been just so wonderfully generous both of them with their time and their insight and we had talked about um, things that were off the record versus not etc. Um, she also wrote a fax at that time um, that said and this has been in the news some, I think, because of some of the questions surrounding the publication of Watchmen more recently. Um, as I mentioned, the serious stroke was in 2007, and, and uh, Alice said, poor Nell Harper, this was, so this was back in, what, 2000? I mean, this was some years ago now. She said, poor Nell Harper uh, can't see and can't hear and will sign anything put in front of her by someone in whom she has confidence. Now she has no memory of the incident. And in that case, the incident was referring to someone typing up a statement and bringing it over to the Assisted Living Center for her to sign. Um, but of course, that points to other issues that have been in the news with Watchmen now and concerns about those circumstances. Um, she, now Harper is 88 now. and. Uh, People in that town, it's been, it's been, there's been turmoil in that town um, of late, and I think a lot of you may have followed the coverage. For example, there was a lawsuit um, against the courthouse museum that is put on the play, um, and there was, there have been any number of things, and so it's, um, for so long, things were kind of handled in a certain way, and, uh, and then in recent years, there's, there's been a switch. Our next question is how was Mills able to take the amount of time required to write her memoir, which originally stemmed from a Chicago Tribune assignment? Was she still employed with the paper during this endeavor? Well, that's true, and especially newspaper deadlines are famously short, and so they had been so pleased that Alice was willing to help me for the story, um, and so already back in 2001, what had been a more, uh, you know, a smaller scope for the story I was given more time in order to expand that. And um, so that was true as this grew into a very long profile and sidebar stories. But when I was living in Monroeville, um, I, was, I have lupus, which is an autoimmune condition that uh, causes fatigue and different problems. And I was looking for a way to, the, the newspaper schedule was not compatible with um, the ups and downs of lupus and some hospital stays. and I. Um, so that was a time when I was just concentrating on, on resting in Monroeville and speaking with friends and families and um, collecting the stories that went into the book. I wasn't writing for the, for the Tribune then. This audience member asks if the publication of Ghost Set a Watchman was a surprise to Mills. How did this novel finally come to life after so many years? Yeah, I remember when that news came out, I think a lot of you did. It made headlines around the world. Um, and I, I mean, I was surprised by the news. She had talked about um, how much work it was to go from her initial efforts to what became To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, but, but I was surprised when that news went out. And of course, um, that's been something that's made headlines periodically. Yeah, and some of the... Um, news stories have conflicted a bit. I mean, the, um, there was a, the early reports were that it was found in a safe deposit box 
um, that had that and other things related to her writing. Um, my understanding was that this was an earlier effort um, and that, that her editor, Tay Hohoff, helped her shape what became To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think those of you who've read Watchmen, I think there are parts of that book where you do see a younger writer still trying to find her voice and the pacing is uneven in parts. I think when she has some of the childhood flashbacks, you certainly see glimmers of that kind of um, being under the spell of her storytelling, as I think people often are, all the way through To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, so my understanding is that this was a much was a much earlier effort, and in fact there were records to that effect. I personally don't doubt that she wrote it. I think um, my concerns have been more around the the circumstances under which it was published. The last question of the night comes from a reader wondering if Mills has any favorite stories from her time with the Lee sisters. <laughs> well, one of them, and since my brother is here, maybe it's fun to, and, and his two sons are here. Um, one of them had to do when we were out driving, and, and um, they were at this point, Alice would have been in her 90s, and Nell Harper in her 70s. And we were coming up on a red light, and Nell Harper started to accelerate. She was behind the, the wheel of the Buick driving Miss Alice with me in the back seat, and she started to accelerate. Uh, and then realized she wouldn't be able to make it through. Um, but when she accelerated on yellow, Alice Lee looked over at her baby sister and, and uh, indicated that yellow does mean caution, not accelerate. And Nell looked at her and shot back. Alice uh, was not wearing her seatbelt that day and shot back. And Monroe County's most law-abiding citizen isn't wearing her seatbelt. Um, and I just got a kick out of it. I thought, even in your 70s and 90s, <laughs> Siblings will have that kind of exchange. Um, and one other one, just briefly, was was as simple as reading with them in their living room um, early on. And just, they were both such, uh, you know, they, I think from early ages, and in many, in large part thanks to their parents, I think, grew up reading and getting lost in the pages of books. And so there was something magical about just being there in silence with them in their living room as they read, each had a reading chair in this pretty modest living room. And, uh, and I was there that day reading the uh, mobile register and turning the pages as softly as possible so I wouldn't disturb uh, the magic of those two sisters still reading after all those years. Uh, any more questions anybody has, please just come and see me afterwards over here. I'm here as long as anybody wants to talk. Thank you so much. Thank you. Enjoy it. Thank you. That wraps up our Prior Lake Library event with Maria Mills in Scott County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Emily St. John Mandel at 7 p.m. Monday, October 12th at the Stillwater Public Library. Canadian novelist Emily St. John Mandel made waves last year with the release of Station Eleven, a dystopian narrative unlike any other. In a starred review, Kirkus Reviews called it magnetic an ambitious take on a post-apocalyptic world. Meet Emily St. John Mandel, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons. Sign up for our e-newsletter 
check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle at clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.